The SEND Network podcast is brought to you by the SEND Network, a digital community for SEND practitioners to connect and collaborate. To find out more, head over to send-network.co.uk. Hello, welcome to the SEND Network podcast. I'm Izzy Felton and this is part two of our discussion on intersectionality between race and SEND with Francis Akinday. Francis is a former head teacher, co-launcher of the BAME Ed SEND Hub and qualified SENCO. After discovering that she was neurodivergent last year, Francis now uses her lived experiences to offer training and support to ensure that our schools and workplaces are truly inclusive. In part two, we will be exploring the positive action that educators and schools can take to help tackle discrimination against a student's race and disability. I've got three of your own ideas here. So we're going to go through them um, of how they can sort of, them three actions can help people uh, make the places of education more inclusive in practice, not just, you know, with words. Yeah. So the first of these is remove structural barriers that create educational inequalities. Can you give me a bit of a insight into what these structural barriers look like? Oh, it's at every single level. So, I mean, my statistic as a black female head teacher from Afro background is 0.2% of school leaders. Wow. So we know that in terms of teacher training, the trajectory completely changes. So we have a yeah. lot of teachers from BAME backgrounds entering into teacher training, but then the first barrier is being accepted onto the teacher training. Then it's getting a position. So we know that there are more. you are more likely to be a supply teacher than have a permanent contract if you're from a BAME background. Mm-hmm. Then getting into, gosh, middle leadership, having responsibilities without it being classed as an associate role that you don't get paid for, which we can't afford to do and economically, that trajectory into headship is just so hard. So we've got people that start off in teacher training and then by the time you get to head teach level CEO level let's not even go there you know that representation isn't there we need that representation in education we need people that understand what those difficulties look like what those barriers are from their own experiences and how they've been supported to overcome them so that's the first thing is in terms of workplace representation The second area is around engagement with parents. So lots of people will say those families are hard to reach. Families are not hard to reach. Like you're finding it hard to engage with them. So what do you need to do to change your practice? And I get this question all the time. You know, we have a whole history of mistrust Mm -hmm. in the education system. Because if you think about the experience of um people from the Caribbean in particular after the Windrush, it's like they weren't accepted into English society. They were asked to come over to England and then it was like they couldn't get accommodation, they couldn't get jobs. These were highly skilled people. Their children were in mainstream schools. Then they were lied to and historically they were lied to and said, your child doesn't suit this school and we're going to take them to a special school. They thought a special school meant exactly that. This is because my child is special, you know. And you can read up around um, educational um, schools for the subnormal, they used to call it, um, and the whole history of that. Now, we've been going through that for the last, what, 70 years now. Mm. And you could argue that in a lot of areas, things haven't been, been changing, you know. As a black 
child, you're more likely to be excluded as a black Caribbean child. And people always say to me, you're from black African um, descent. Why do you talk about black Caribbean? Well, when you look at me, you can't tell. <laughs> you know, so, you know, things aren't going to be better for one person if I'm not advocating for them, you know. Yeah. You can't separate us like that. And there's too much division around that. So it's thinking about getting schools to look at their data, to do the analysis, to say, right, first and foremost, let's just take a step back before we're looking at an exclusion, before we're looking at suspension, when we're looking at a child that we say has got an attitude problem, what are they trying to express to us? What does that look like? If a child can't access the work, what support are we putting in place? Instead of straight away saying they're a problem, they're being a problem, how do we check our own biases to look at the things that that we're thinking about a child and just taking that step back. So it's all areas around there. Another area is around assessment as well. And I'm mm-hmm. a strong, I love assessments. I know people are like, oh, we shouldn't be doing assessments. I love assessments. I, When I moved from primary to secondary school, as I said, I didn't have any assessments when I was younger around additional needs. And when I moved from primary to secondary, I did the year six test, I was put in top sets in secondary school. I walked into my lesson with my timetable on my first day. I was there with my friend who was like white with blonde hair. We were like best friends in primary school. Walked into the lesson. They looked at both of us and said to me, you're in the wrong class. I said, oh, my timetable. Looked at my timetable. They told me to get out. And then I was like, but my timetable says set one. They'd automatically assumed my friend had been in the right class in set one and I wasn't. And that was my first experience of just people writing me off from the beginning. So Mm -hmm. assessments are really important to me because if I hadn't have had that assessment, nobody would have been aware of my innate ability. And I think we have to understand in teacher assessments, we do have that bias as well. You know, there are those students that we say, well, they always get an A. They must have been having a, a good day. And we give them the benefit of the doubt. When we've got other students that we say, oh, they're always coasting. But what we see in black students in, partic- in particular is education is so important. They know that's their kind of, um, you know, that can change the trajectory of their life. So we do see people making more of an effort, despite the challenges they, they've had when it comes to exams. Now, as a teacher, we've had, how many years of them just getting fed up and not making the effort, then all of a sudden they're making an effort and we can't quite believe it. So we're more likely to give them lower predicted grades. You know, we saw this uh, in bias when we did the um, teacher assessments during lockdown, that children were being predicted lower than their capability because of our attitude towards them. So it's looking at our engagement with parents and thinking about what can we do to change rather than thinking the parents need to change. It's looking at our recruitment procedures. It's looking at our assessment, our data analysis, our analysis of exclusions and suspensions, teacher workforce, teacher training, mm-hmm. like every single aspect of the school, looking at all of that so that we really have this sense of belonging and community where yeah. every single member of staff, every student feels that they belong in your school and feels like they can talk to you about some of those barriers that um, they're facing. So, yeah, I mean, that's um, my whole article in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I think that, that um, story is so powerful of your first day yeah. going into your lesson. That's, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it helps us to acknowledge why transitions are so important, you know, yeah. and I strongly believe we see it, you know, where children's anxiety means that they struggle with that whole kind of move from primary where they're in a smaller, more nurtured environment. And we see this with Gypsy Roman Traveller children in particular, where they tend to have better attendance in primary school. And when it comes to secondary, that attendance uh, drops dramatically. And it's Mm. because of that sense of belonging, that sense of community, and people kind of looking at their own bias around that child, why that child is struggling in school. So it's something that we really need to be aware of as well in terms of how do we get transition arrangements right for every single child. So, Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as well, you mentioned um, having a diverse workforce. Yeah. How would you recommend schools like work to sort of try and achieve this? Thinking about you. Yeah, but you know (laughs) what? It's about thinking about your recruitment um, procedures and how you make people feel welcome. It's about engaging with communities. You know what? I was visiting a head teacher. It's not a very diverse school in a in a diverse area. He had been invited to the local church by one of the parents, and he was like, "Oh, is it stepping over the boundaries like to go?" But actually, it was a celebration assembly because they were so thankful to the school for just making them feel so welcome. They were putting on a special event for the school to say oh, thank that's, you. That's lovely. Now, this head teacher really embraced that, and he was like, mm. is it really bad if I go? Because I want them to feel, like, welcome and stuff. It's things like that, reaching out to your local community and thinking, mm. what can I do to bring the community in? Now, there's a book called um, We're All White Here, and it's basically a play on words to say, well, we don't need to think about that because we're not in a very diverse area. But you have no excuses now not to think about how you can make your children global citizens. Sometimes that means reaching out to a wider lens of people. Like, let's say, for example, with governance, if you're not in an area that is very racially diverse, how can you reach out to people in terms of that recruitment? So with the Baymaid Network, we have like a recruitment portal where people can advertise for positions. They've got a wider pool of people. So it's thinking about governance, thinking about, do you have a DI governor? You know, do they look at equity, equality, diversity and inclusion as part of their remit, you know, and things like that. So there's lots of work to be done around those areas. I think in particular, I'm not a fan of a fan of blind recruitment. I'm not mm-hmm. a fan of taking off all my protected characteristics to make the person doing the interview feel better. What I am a fan of is you sitting on your own feelings and thinking to yourself, I've just had someone with a name that I'm not familiar with, with protected characteristics that I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Let me just sit with my feelings around that and acknowledge the bias that has come up for me. I'd much rather work for an organisation that acknowledges that they've got bias and they've got work to yeah. do than someone that says, oh, no, we treat everybody the same and doesn't acknowledge that I have differences. So I would definitely say it's something that we need to look at in terms of recruitment and us being able to reflect on ourselves and our own feelings about difference. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Actually, perfectly moves on to our next bit, which was the your second action is remove inequality and discrimination, which have no place in education. Yes. Um, and we spoke a little bit in part one, of of our conversation around send and and 
intersectionality about unconscious bias. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. What do you want schools to do to help tackle this? So it's a really good question. I have had the experience before where people have seen my profile, seen what I talk about and said, can you come into my school and do some training? Mm -hmm. I'll come in, do a one-off session, never hear from them again. Typically, that's because they've had an incident in school and they're worried about the fallout of that. So they want to show that they're doing something. Actually, you are doing something around performance. So when we're thinking about true allyship and performative allyship, that's very um, performative. Mm -hmm. Every single organisation in the world now is a DI lead. Everybody has someone that they can say, see, we don't have discrimination here because we have somebody who's from the LGBTQ plus community, someone from the minority community that's here representing everybody. And we've told them that this is what we're doing and we're going to put pictures of it on social media and say, nice to see our DI, DI group meeting. But then we're not actually listening to people and thinking about their lived experience of what that looks like within our organisations. So I like the um, Pred Anti-Racist Schools Award and I'm a coach for them because it's about how you can make a sustained change and analyse yourself over a period of time. It's not a one-off session where, again, I get paraded around, this is Frances, she's going to help us with our anti-racism agenda. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we haven't even had this conversation, but you just want (laughs) all the staff to see that I'm here and I never hear from you again, you know. So with the Anti-Racist Schools Award and other awards that you can get, it's impactful because you're analysing yourself, you're looking at all those areas, right from recruitment, governance, um, the curriculum, um, you know, pedagogy, training, all those things, your school community, the hidden um, curriculum, you're looking at all those areas and you're answering a series of questions around those areas and thinking, right, okay, we need to do better. We need to do better in all these areas. And we've actually got a framework that can support us to do that. Now, the next steps from that is thinking, right, we've got two years to have a look at what we're doing and how we can make change. And when you're, there's a saying that basically says, you know, it's it's not the destination, it's the journey, right? Because over that time, you're going to change, you're going to reflect, you're going to grow, you're going to think, you're going to be more reflective around some of the things that you've done in the past, some of the actions you can take to do better going forward. So I like that approach, you know, where you're taking it a bit slower and you're listening. The amount of listening exercises I've been invited to say, this is a listening exercise. We want to hear about your experience. I don't need to tell you again. Go on chat GBT or Bing and ask that what it <laughs> feels like to be discriminated in education. Like, stop asking me. Do something about it. You know, do your research, read the right books so you can do something. Take responsibility for yourself, you know, in those areas. Yeah. So I am being positive. You know, I said, oh, this second half is positive, but. I really need to put the onus back on people to do the work. And, yeah. you know, there's lots of work around reflection, doing the inner work so you can do the outer work. That is so important. Mm-hmm. That's something everybody needs to do. So, yeah, I put it back on people to do the work. And what I was hoping with my book on allyship, what I'm hoping, what I know it will do is help people to reflect. So it's being able to have an open and honest conversation with yourself 
around yeah. your own biases, your own attitudes, some of those areas where you may have been able to cause harm. But on top of that, it's saying that those areas are something that you can use going forward to support you to do better. And then actually looking at your children and young people and how you can support them to do better as teachers. So yeah, yeah you, you have to be committed to doing the work and reflecting on yourself. Yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, it's all about prevention, isn't it? It shouldn't be yeah. that it's a uh, something that comes up after something's happened. Exactly. It should be that it doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's taking a proactive approach rather than a yeah. reactive approach. You yeah, know? it's too late when somebody's been harmed. It's too late. Too late. That's something that's going to be on them for the rest of their life. Yeah. I would much rather schools committed to taking a reactive, a proactive approach so that they don't. Mm-hmm charm you know and when they do that they're able to reflect on that so yeah it's really important yeah definitely um and your last action point is further work on creating equity in education by continuing to raise our collective voices around these issues um you highlight equity here over equality yeah which i really like um could you explain to us why it's important oh you know what (laughs) it's the most important thing you know we say to ourselves as a society we need to treat everyone equally everyone has to have equal access but actually if you've come from a background where you're white middle class you're neurotypical your access to things whether you want to acknowledge it or not is going to be a lot easier than other people So, yes, you have equal access to things, but some people need a bit more action, a bit more support. And this is this whole debate around SEN where it's like, I want everybody to put things in place in the classroom. I want our classrooms to be equitable so that when I walk in, if a child needs a movement break, they get it. If the child needs, um, you know, to go out of the classroom, they don't have to have an interview to get a toilet pass or a break pass yeah. or something else like that. It's just something everybody can have access to. And that's what I mean by equity. What is it that that individual needs to thrive? You know, and I like to think about it as what support does an individual need to succeed? And that support might look very different to somebody else who's sitting right next to them, you know, and that's the whole point about equity is treating every single person as an individual uh, rather than equality where everybody's treated the same. Equity is about thinking about those individual needs and what you need to thrive. So it's really important to me that I've, I want to be able to one day walk into a new inclusive classroom that's not in a special school, that's in a mainstream school and go... Yeah. That person's got a laptop, brilliant. That person's got an iPad, brilliant. That person's yeah. using dictation. That person's oh, using, you know, a, a search engine that helps them filter through the noise. That person's got, you know, a filter that helps them access the content, you know, a coloured overlay and all those kind of things without having to go through a gatekeeper, which is the teacher or the Senko to have access to those things. So yeah. that is my dream that one day that's how we're all going to be able to to study, you know, yeah. and yeah. work. That would be amazing. I love yeah, that. It would, be, <laughs> Sounds would, be, great. would be amazing. It would change education for everybody. Usually we end these podcasts on 
our three key takeaways. I mean, we've covered so much <laughs> in these two parts. I, yeah. I don't even know if we could. Um, but what, in your mind, are some takeaways from from these these conversations? Oh, gosh, just three. That's really hard. I know, um, it's difficult. <laughs> I would say be open to listening, learning and reflecting. Yeah. And I would just say that as the three most important things. And you can break yeah. each one of those areas down. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about listening, who do you need to listen to? You know, have more varied voices in your circle you know, have different people that you can talk to or listen to about their experiences Um, and learning, do your research, you know, even if that means on social media, widening your circle. And I've had people say to me, I really like following you on social media because I'm learning things that I wouldn't really have thought of from my own perspective. And that's engaging with people that are not from the same background as you, don't look like you, you know, enjoy other things that you're not into at all, you know. So that's the part about learning. Reflecting is around doing the inner work. Honestly, it's we love a bit of feedback in education, but we're not really good at taking it ourselves. And that reflective is thinking to yourself at the end of the lesson, what could I have done differently to avoid that situation to that for that child not to be walking out of class? How can I take the time after to follow up with them and show them that I care? It's so powerful when you've had an incident in a lesson with somebody, you take the time to find them. And I know this, we're so pressurized, but to ring them, to touch base with their family and say, look, this is yeah. what's happened. This is what I need to make you aware of. And not in a negative way and just say, look, I'm really trying here. Please help me out. You know, what can I do? And have that conversation, just taking that time to listen to someone and just reflect on your own behavior is one of the most powerful things you can do in education. And when we're talking about a relationship-based approach, that's the difference you see in PRUs and alternative provisions and special schools where people have thought about those relationships and thought, how can I engage with this young person and make things better for them? Not looking from my lens, but trying to understand it from their point of view. Beautiful. A brilliant way to end it. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Send Network podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. For more information and resources on the topic we spoke about in today's episode, please head over to send-network.co.uk.